Hey, everybody, this is Ken Hummer, and welcome back to another show, The Wiser Money Show. And I got my co-host here, Zach. Zach, welcome on. Thank you for having me again. I'm excited to continue talking about this, this info and all of these topics that we have here. This is going to be a great one, though. So everybody, this will affect you at some point, probably, hopefully. Hopefully it stays, but, but we'll see how it all goes. But Ken, there's been a lot going on as of late with inflation, with social security benefits. And really, I want to, I want to bring this one up to your attention and kind of go through that article that we were just talking about the other day and see if we can help other people listening in on, on how to approach this topic. Very good, Zach. Yeah. Zach's talking about an article here. Let me look it up real quick. It's, um, Oh, it's actually pretty recent, March 20th of 23, and it's uh, credit goes to CNBC, Lori Konish. And she wrote an article. Here's the title of the article. It says, after an 8.7% Social Security cost of living adjustment for 23, next year's increase may not be as large. Well, let me just tell you, um, inflation is, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny, Zach, because People right now, they're freaking out like, you know, inflation seven, it's 8%. It's just because we printed so much money in the last 10 years, it artificially brought everything down. But historically, you know, inflation has been four and 5%. So this is just a um, a blip in the a spike of it. But, right. you know, things today aren't that far out of the, the mean or the average of what they normally have been. Right. So, I mean, I'll ask you, I mean, when you got your house or when you got your car, you know, what was the interest rate you got when you got it? See, I'm very fortunate when it comes to this because I bought my house in 2021 and those those rates were so low. My interest rate, don't hate me, anyone, but it's 2.875%. So I will never be doing anything with that one. Well, you know, you can't you can't argue with that. I mean, that's just a good financial move. You're borrowing at an average real estate appreciation of five to six percent at two percent, and essentially you're acting like your own little hedge fund, making two two and a half percent on money that's not even yours. That's <laughs> that's a smart move, right? But you know, there's there's the example. People are freaking out now because you know they've got five or six percent interest uh, on a mortgage. And they think that this is just horrible, but they're not recognizing that's the average. It's only been the last 10 years or so since right after the financial meltdown in 2008-9 that you've been able to get rates like that. Right. So right. I, even back in the day, I mean, I, I've talked to people that said when they bought their first house, they bought it at a 12% interest rate or something like that. And that is something I can't even begin to understand. But yeah. maybe we'll see that in our lifetime. Well, there's, you know, it's interesting when people go back to the 80s and rates were at 12%, the dynamic was, you, you got to calculate all of the parts of that dynamic, which is while you, you're borrowing at 12%, remember, that's when Paul Volcker came in, in the 80s, and we had this hyperinflation, and he raised borrowing interest rates to 19%. And so people want to remember part of that. See, Volcker came in, they call it the Volcker effect. It was like a shock, right? A slap in the face, all of a sudden you 19%. And that did damage to the market. It did damage to the real estate market, but he had to get inflation under control. 
and people would have to borrow at 12%. And then what you hear is the one side of it, which is, oh, I remember in the good old days, I could make 15% on my CD. Yeah, that was for a very short period of time. Inflation, interest rates were 19 borrowing and inflation was 15 to 20%. Right. So it's not that you just can pick this thing out of the past and go, hey, uh, 15% is what I earned in the 80s. I wish I could earn that again. Because there's other dynamics that threw that off. Yeah, I think a, a, a big issue is there people, like you're saying, they experience one thing one time in their life. And then when it's different, the next time they go to do that, they're all up in arms. Like I remember back in my day, or it's never been this high before. Yeah, it's never been this high, but then it's going to go back down. Or it has been this high before, and you just have short-term memory because you want to remember the good old days and not the average days. It reminds me of, you know, when we had our child and, you know, my wife is in the hospital and she's screaming and yelling and I'm never doing this again. I, this is <laughs> two weeks doing. later, two weeks yeah, later, six weeks, six weeks later, they're like, you want to have another one? <laughs> <laughs> that same exact thing happened with me. I mean, morning sickness and everything and never doing this again, even before the baby and literally six weeks later, four weeks later. It wasn't that bad. I said, it wasn't that bad. What do you mean it wasn't that bad? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, on topic, we're, we're going to talk about this article here, Social Security. <laughs> and, you know, I have had in my decades of working many uh, distrusting feelings towards Social Security. This goes back to the 80s. And I don't know if anybody remembers this or not, but our country lent Brazil, and I want to say at that time, it was in the 80s, it was probably in the hundreds of millions, if not maybe short of small billions of dollars, and Brazil defaulted on the debt. And that came out of Social Security. So remember, let's talk about why Social Security was created to begin with. It is just what it says, social insurance. So while we live in this capitalistic country, there are still areas that are considered socialistic um, types of areas. And that could be in some Medicaid's, Medicare, and it's certainly in Social Security. It's It was supposed to be designed to remedy what happened in the Great Depression, because in the Great Depression, there was no Medicaid, no Medicare, no Section 8, no Social Security, so all these things were developed after that disaster. However, because of political plays, no one has really adjusted Social Security to stay as social insurance, meaning you could be you could hit a sweet spot with Social Security and maybe be earning somewhere around $150,000 a year. You're paying the max wage base, but you could get almost $50,000 a year in retirement. Now, if you reverted that into what would I need in capital to reproduce 50 grand a year in a safe interest rate, we would need about a million dollars. Right. So if we looked at the, the, the principal value of Social Security, if you divided the amount you get per year into a capital amount, that's what the value of Social Security is. But here's the big problem. If I had a million dollars producing 50 grand a year for me and I own that million dollars, 
I can be assured that if I die on Monday, my wife and kids have that. I can be assured that I can pass it on to my kids when I die. I could be assured that if I had that million dollars and I needed that for long-term care, I could access that money. So now let's look at social security. We're going to talk about the inflation. And then we're going to talk about this giant mystery that everybody asks the question, should I defer social security to max it out? And I'll give you two sides of it, the math and my opinion. They're different because in most cases, they're the same, but not 100% of the time. So I'm going to ask a question to you, Zach. When you get your paycheck and you see that mandatory Social Security deduction, Mm -hmm. would you rather have that money invest on your own? I mean, absolutely. I'd rather have the control of all of my money instead of putting it somewhere else where I don't necessarily have the control. Like you just mentioned, I mean, if I if that was a, a large number and I needed that money for any reason whatsoever, if it's in social security, I can't do anything. I'm not benefiting from this money that's going in there, especially now. But if I took it out myself and deferred it and put it into wherever I wanted it to go, I always have access. So of course, I think the big question is control. And do I want the control? Absolutely. Well, that'll careen into my next point, which is, I'm going to kind of jump around here because of what you said. If you look at how much information is out there on, you know, the the Google the platform, the internet platform, nine out of 10 times, the advice is to defer your social security until the latest date. So you'll see something commonly called FRA. That's your full retirement age. Mm -hmm. And as we as humans have lived longer, the government has had to push full retirement age out further. So when I first started working, full retirement age was 65 and early was 62. Mm -hmm. And now you go all the way up to 70 and they're talking about pushing that to 75 as full retirement age. But as it stands right now, you could take early retirement at 62 based upon the year that you were born most likely to be 63, 64. I think right now, because I was born in 66, I think it's 62 in eight months or 63, they change it, but it. it's, it's close to that. And, you know, when I look at my social security and it says that, you know, at age, whatever it is, um, call it 63, I'm going to get, I think it was $3,000 a month. However, if I defer it, to age 70 for eight years, it will grow by 7% per year. And I think that the estimate was $4,800 or some number like that. Right. So this is, this is the big problem that I have. Most of what you read out there, it, you, you go online and say, when should I take my social security age? It's incorrect. And here's why it's incorrect. Most of the time, that information is pumped out by insurance agents, annuity salespeople, insurance companies, financial companies. And what they try to do is there's a sales technique that I've seen insurance agents use. The the insurance agents say, look how much more Social Security you can get if you wait till age 70. Person says, but I want to retire. How do I fill that gap? They make them buy an annuity or they try to sell them an annuity. They fill the gap and they use this deferral and this false sense that they're going to get more at a later time. 
And so I've seen so many people say, well, or take their social security early, or I'm sorry, let me correct that. They defer their social security and I'll ask them, why are you doing that? I'm going to get so much more. I'm making 7% on my money. Right. Well, let's really break that down. It's not 7% on your money because you don't own the money. You only own a income stream while you're alive, but there's no capital because it's a socialistic program that the capital goes back to the masses, not to your family. Absolutely. So you're not really earning 7%. So I'm going to use a, I'm going to use an example. And this example is not going to be mathematically correct because I'm just taking it off my head, but at least <laughs> you'll get the understanding. So if I'll use me as an example. So let's make the assumption that at age, call it 63, I'm going to get three grand a month. I think it was 2,800, whatever, $3,000 a month, call it $36,000 a year. And let's say that by the time I'm 70, and let's say it's $4,800 a month, right? So actually, let's give the Social Security benef benefit even better. Let's call it five grand a month. So there's a $24,000 delta between age 62, 63 and 70, right? So if I waited that long, but now let's talk about what I give up and what everybody else in my family gives up. So if I took $36,000 a year right now and I bank that money for seven years, what is that? $260,000. I am going to be able to bank $260,000. Call it round it off, quarter million dollars. Right. Now I got a quarter million dollars that my family owns. Yeah, that's your money. I control that, right? So now if I looked and I said, okay, I'm going to use the same exact number because either way, you still get the inflationary increases. Like last year, it you know there was an 8.7% inflationary increase. If you would have taken your Social Security early, you would have gotten that no matter what. Right. So you still get those. It's just the bump in the base. So now, if I said, call it a quarter million dollars, and let's say realistically right now, we can get 6% on a T-bill. That's $15,000 a year in extra income. So now if I said I'm age 70, I got a quarter million dollars. And let's say that the interest that I earned on that additional money was another $25,000 over seven years. So I got say $275,000 at age 70. And let's say that I could earn 6% on that. So I've got an extra, what, 17, $18,000 a year coming in, call it $1,500 a month. So now the delta is not three grand to five grand. The delta really is three grand plus the $1,500 a month that I earn on that money. So I'm really only short by $500 a month. But the biggest difference is you now own that money. I own that money. My family owns that money. So now let's look at what happens. If I said I die at 71, if I, if I waited until 70, they only get one year of the increase. If I die the day after I turn 70, they only get one day. Maybe they get one month of the increase, right? Versus now they get a quarter million dollars or $275,000. That's their money. Now, some yeah. people argue and say, well, 
what about your spouse? And so the spousal rules work that the surviving spouse is going to get the greater of mine or half of theirs. Got it. But the difference is I still got $275,000 backed up because remember, Social Security, like we talked about on the last um, recording, Social Security doesn't pay for long-term care. Right. Medicaid does not pay for long-term care. So now if my spouse gets sick, they've got $0. Here they've got $275,000. So logically, to me, that makes a lot more sense than saying, I'm going to defer it. Now, let me tell you the other things that I don't like about deferring it. Seven years, I got to wait for the politicians to try to become honest and give me <laughs> what I paid into and what was promised. I, I just do not have that belief that our politicians will follow what they say they're going to do. I see it every day because we, we're in the tax world. We see the IRS. Uh, we see Congress. A great example of this is the ERC, you know, the mm -hmm. Employment Retention Credit. It, you know, President Trump promised that it was going to go into all four quarters of 21. Biden gets elected. He says, sorry, it's only three quarters. And they right. recanted, even though Congress originally approved it, and then all those businesses that got that money, they had to repay it. And if they didn't repay it, they got penalties. So I'm sorry, I just do not trust the government is actually going to follow through with what they promise. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a valid concern. I mean, there are people on all sides that don't feel that way, that feel or feel the same way, I should say, where things are said and then things aren't always followed through. Right. So leaving it up again, that brings me back to wanting that control. And you've just solidified the reason for wanting that control. Why put it in other people's hands? Why put it in people's hands that aren't actually going through the day-to-day -day life of you, of Ken, if you can put it in your own hands and kind of decide what you're going to do with that? Well, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to say at this point, the most logical thing to do is go hire a financial planner. But the problem is those waters are so muddied. People have come to me and they said, well, I hired a financial planner to do it. No, they're not. They're a broker. They're selling annuities. They're right. selling financial services. And they're, they're not doing the right math or the right calculations. And now you don't have the right outcome. So it, it, first, it, I, I would love to say go hire a financial planner, but you got to be so careful as to who you're hiring and what their motive is as to whether they're doing the right math or calculations. Because to me now, I'll tell you, the math is so far weighted, in my opinion, that somebody should take Social Security as early as they can. Because A, it's the future value of that capital. Two, you don't know what the politicians are going to do. Um, they've made so many changes with the Social Security system that you, you can't tell what's next. I mean, originally, it was supposed to come in as tax-free income because it was designed as social insurance. Right. And then the government said, well, we need more money. So now we're going to tax it. So if you're getting Social Security and you're making more than, say, $44,000 a year, which includes half of the Social Security, now they tax it. Right. I think there's a third piece to that, too. And taking it as early as possible, if you, do, you don't know what's going to happen to you in your life. Like if you, if you die at 68, but you're deferring to 70, you get nothing. Right. So 
if you take it early, you at least can use the money that you've been putting into forever. You could use it or put it away or have the control of it versus deferring it. You never know what you're going to get tomorrow. Like you always say, Ken, you might wake up and get hit by a bus. Well, if that's the case and you didn't take anything, you lost out. So I think I agree with you there. Yeah. The family, your family gets nothing out of the whole system of everything you paid into. Again, social insurance means you pay in and other people may get the benefit of it. Right. Now, what the, where the problem lies is that in most cases, you as a W-2 employee, you can't really change um, what you pay in Social Security. And, you know, this is a good point to bring up something kind of off, off the topic is when business owners are setting up pension plans, they have to be cognizant, at, especially if it's a small business, that when you create a 401k, you are paying social security tax on your deferrals. So I'm not, that's why a lot of times people are like pumping the drum of 401ks. Well, big, big financial centers love 401ks. But you know, listen, if I'm deferring money and I defer $27,000 into a 401k, but I'm paying 6.2% in FICA tax, and another 1.5 in Medicare, I'm not truly deferring money. I'm still paying Social Security tax on that. Right. And what happens, but that, see, the thing is there are pension plans that are out there that you can defer money into that do not get taxed for Social Security. Problem is they're not as profitable for the people selling it as 401ks. So a lot of business owners don't even know about that. Yep. They're not okay. they're not even talked about because right. this other this other product costs or nets them more income. So they're like, oh, do this one. You'll be fine. That's right. So getting back to the topic is you, uh, you know, you if you waited until age 70, and like you said, you died prior to, you get nothing. B is what happens if you make it to 70, but you don't live long enough in the break-even period. Like right now, the break-even period is about age, age 84 to age 85. It means that that $275,000 that you have booked or, or banked mm-hmm. in those years, it would take you past that mid-80s to actually break even. Well, right now, what a lot of people don't know is when it comes to healthcare and food, the U.S. is a third world country our mortality has actually gone backwards. It started going up and the average male went from 72 life expectancy to 74 to 76, almost topped out at 77, but we just lost almost three years. It went backwards by three years. And when you look at that number statistically, because this is all the math, right? You have to, like any investment, you have to bank on the statistics. Statistically, you'll never make it past the break-even point Right. To make make it worthwhile to break even with Social Security by deferring it. But if you take it at 62, that break even point is a lot younger than the mid 80s. That's right. Well, let's 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 take this one step further. Let's not talk about just what, you know, three thousand dollars a month can actually do for you in the comparison of should I take it early or late? Now let's talk about some wealth building. Wealth building is different than the mathematical calculation. So there's these two levels. One is 
mathematically, what should somebody make a decision to do? And then let's add on a whole different mentality. You know, I hear this all the time. There are authors out there. There are speakers out there. There are TV personalities out there that somehow have convinced America that you're going to get wealthy by not going to start Starbucks and buying a $5 coffee. Some of these uh, financial gurus have told people that the best thing you can do is pay down debt. The best thing you can do is don't borrow. Now, listen, I am a big believer in there's bad debt and good debt. I've talked about that for years. Bad debt is a depreciating asset. Bad debt is credit card debt. Well, unless you are buying something that's an investment with a credit card, which you can't usually do. But bad debt is something that doesn't grow. But good debt is an acquisition of a company, buying a piece of investment property. Let me clarify something real quick. A personal residence and borrowing for it is not good debt. It's still bad debt. It's not making any money for you. Well, it's not making any money. It's still, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story about my dad real quick. So my dad says, now, keep in mind, my dad was academically a genius. He had two PhDs. I mean, who does that, right? I mean, that's a suicide <laughs> to me. I mean, that's just me. But he's very, very book smart. And he was, he's passed away. He's He was very, very book smart. But when it came to money, it just didn't click. He just didn't get it because back in 2007, um, I said, Dad, it's time to sell a house because I we liquidated all our all our real estate back in 2006, seven. And I said, Dad, it's time to sell your house. He had a house in Palm Springs. And he said, no, no. He says, this thing has made a ton of money for me. I said, it hasn't made any money for you at all. He goes, no. He says, I bought this 10 years ago. And look, it's doubled in value. I said, OK, but wait a minute. Let's do this. How much did you pay? And property tax, improvements, utilities, et cetera. And then subtract what you would have paid in rent. You calculate that all out. You made less than a bank account. And it's not been a very good investment. Right. And so he said, now I want to hold on to it. Well, then his $350,000 house dropped to $150,000 in 2008. Mm-hmm. And then he couldn't sell it because he had a $170,000 mortgage. He was upside down. Yeah. Okay, so he was locked in. So I want to clarify when I talk about bad debt, good debt, bad debt is a personal residence. It's not good debt. It's not making a lot of money, right? Now, you could take a home equity loan or a mortgage to buy a business or to buy rental properties. Now, that's good debt because it's going to produce money. Right. So when we talk about Social Security, let's look at the, the effect of cash flow as it applies to borrowing. So let's use the example. I'm going to use me as an example. Actually, I just talked to somebody the other day, and I'm going to use her as an example. So she is a nurse making over $100,000 a year. She's 70 years old. She wants to retire, but her financial planner told her she couldn't. She had to work longer. I did the calculations, and I said, I'm sorry. I don't see what she's seeing other than you don't have to start distributing money, which means that financial planner will lose management fees because the, your assets will go down. But you're 70, no kids, never been married. You want to work another five years? She says, heck no. I said, right. well, then retire. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't retire. And she said, well, you know, what about Social Security? I said, you know, take it right now as fast as you can. She goes, well, I was told that I'm 70. And if I take it right now, I'll lose because I'm still working. No, that is not correct. You're past the age where they penalize you. 
Right. So that is the issue is really that, you know, she could take, and I think it worked out. Uh, don't quote me on this. I think it was $3,500 a month. And I said to her, I said, what is it that you really, really want? She said, I would love now. Uh Oh, I'm now I'm going to remember. I have a client that wanted a place in Costa Rica. And I think she, I think that was the same thing. I want to say she wanted a place in Costa Rica. And so I said, well, why don't you buy one? I don't, I don't, my financial planner told me I don't have the capital to do that. I said, well, your financial planner is the same one that told you you couldn't retire. The same one that also told you that you shouldn't take social security. (laughs) And I said, but let's look at it this way. $3,500 with the purchase of a home in Costa Rica, which if you reverse engineer it, she could afford to buy a $300,000 house, pay the tax, the upkeep. And here's what's really cool. She could actually rent it when she's not there. And right. she says, well, I don't understand when I'm retired, how am I going to get a mortgage? You assign your social security payments. It's guaranteed income. Mm-hmm. So when you're not working and they're going to say, well, you don't have a W-2 job. You said, I got better than that. Yeah. I got social security and I can't get laid off from that. Yeah. I can't yeah. get fired from that. That's guaranteed income right there. And so she said, I have never heard of such a thing. Listen, you can take income streams and convert them to capital. Mm-hmm. So you could take a pension, social security, things that you're sitting there deferring because you think you want to get the income in, make them worth more money. Take that income stream, go buy a business with it. If you ever want to buy a business and you're going to say, well, how am I going to do that? Well, if you get $3,000 a month, you can get a $300,000 loan. The social security pays the loan. Now you got $300,000 to go out and buy a business. Right. Right. Now you want to buy a rental property. You want to buy a vacation house. I've done this with people where I've said, you don't want to rent it, but you want it as your own home. That's fine because it's not your primary residence. It's still good debt right? because it can still grow in appreciation and give you tax deductions. So again, I think the real key with looking at social security is to recognize that you can't trust what the government's going to do next. You can't sit there with the hope that they're going to give you a continue to give you a 7%. You know, there was just a congressman that submitted that since Social Security is due for bankruptcy in 2036 and of 2035, that they do away with any more inflationary increases and any more additional deferrals. Take it when you can. They hope you die. That's really <laughs> what they're doing. It's true, I'm sure. That's probably a really good movie. <laughs> I was thinking about that when you said that. Yeah, the government employs black site to reduce Social Security recipients. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. It's a good, a good news article, though, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's talk about one more thing before we conclude today. A lot of business owners, if they're sole proprietors, because we talked about, you know, if you're W-2, you can't change your Social Security. If you're putting away the 401k money. You are paying the full social security tax on that money. Uh, but if you're also a business owner, I find a lot of mistakes. Sole proprietors, which is a Schedule C filing, you're paying both sides. Like when you work for somebody, your employer, they're paying half of your social security Medicare. When you're working um, for yourself, you're paying both sides of that equation. So you're you're paying. Almost 15, well, not almost, but you're paying 
in FICA taxes and Medicare taxes. So I think the real key is if you have a business and you're listening to this, this broadcast, if you are working with a financial planner, they should have already redesigned that for you because there are techniques. I'll put a plug in here. Uh, I wrote a book back in 2016, I want to say, and it's called The Six Biggest Tax Mistakes Doctors Make. But if you're a self-employed person and you really want to learn how to reduce your FICA taxes and Social Security taxes, you don't have to be a doctor. I just wrote that for doctors because I deal with a lot of doctors and they usually make some really giant blundering tax mistakes. But you could be a business owner and everything in that book would apply to you. I think it's like three bucks or four bucks. So, you know, forgive me if I'm making a plug because I think we make like 30 cents on that. I was going to say, you're going to get rich from this. Oh, yeah. 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 Amazon's going to pay me like 30 cents if you buy that book. Uh, but yeah, you can go to Amazon and get it. Just, you know, Google my name, Kenneth Himmler, and you'll find that book. Read that book. It's on Kindle, I think, for like 90 cents or something like that. Uh, there's an Audible if you like Audibles. But the point is, the content in that book will really help you understand if you're a business owner, how to actually reduce that social security tax. And usually what I do is with somebody's working with us, we'll take that, those techniques, we will figure out. So let's say that we save you $10,000 a year in social security tax by these strict structures or strategies. We'll redeploy that. We might tell you, okay, invest eight grand a year in yourself. That way you got the capital. And maybe what you do is go buy yourself some life insurance or disability insurance for the other two grand. That way you've got everything that Social Security promises, but with no guarantee. But now you've done it yourself and you've decided what amounts and you control it. Absolutely. Okay. So um, with that in mind, I'll talk. finally conclude with this article. 8.7%. <laughs> I know that was a lot. I love it. I love it. That's it's great when we can do that because there, there's so much more than just the, the news article you see and people listening. Yeah. They might have seen this news article. Most people don't, or they just see the title or the headline and they just assume the rest of the content, the content here from actually talking about starting from this article is going to be way more valuable to somebody than just reading an article at face value. So I love that we can do that and go back and forth. And then this way people can kind of understand a larger picture than just one pinpointed headline, essentially. Yeah, Zach, I would tell you the other issue I see so much is people read something and it might say categorically, everybody should defer to age 70 social security. And they'll do that. Mm -hmm. Or they meet with a pseudo financial planner and with a underlying motive to sell something and it backfires. So don't believe everything you read on the internet. Don't believe everything that some salesperson calling themselves a financial planner is telling you. Right. I would say the math and the calculations come first, but how, how do you measure the concept of, you could say in a mathematical calculation that it makes sense for me to defer my social security till age 70. But on the flip side, if I took my social security age 63, I could have a vacation house in Costa Rica. How do you measure that lifetime enjoyment over maybe a couple bucks seven years from now that may or may not ever happen? Right. 
So you can lead with the math and the calculations, but you have to have an over layered or an over, what's the word? A top down approach to what else could I do with this money to improve me or my family's life? Right. Okay. So in short, I wish we all had the opportunity. There's been bills that congressmen have put through that have said, give the Americans the choice to do what they want to do with the money. Now, with that in mind, seeing the recent news this morning that 55% of Gen Zers are buying crypto, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good idea to give everybody that free reign, because who knows where that <laughs> would go. They'd all be broke, and the crypto thieves would be rich. But I do think that people have to be cognizant that Social Security deferral is not all it's made out to be in the in the public. Yeah, for, uh, absolutely. But before you conclude, you still gotta have to get to this article because we've been talking about this article from minute one when we got on. <laughs> so after an 8.7% Social Security cost of living adjustment, next year's increase may not be as large. Okay, so let's talk about this article and what it's really saying. Yes, inflation from the government standpoint is pegged at about 7%, but realistically it's more about 9 to 10% because remember the government doesn't include housing, food or fuel because they don't believe we should have shelter, eat or fill up our gas tanks. They pick and choose because if they pick and choose, they can determine the increases on government pensions, social security, et cetera. So what we see in public uh, information on inflation is not really accurate. It's 20 to 30% higher than that. What this means is for Social Security is even though you got a big increase, you actually haven't actually kept up with inflation. So this is another really good example that if you wait and you get a 7% deferral, that may not outperform the actual inflationary increase. Now, I'm not saying that you can invest it for more. Sometimes people get more. If you looked at the average of the S&P 500 market at eight and a half to 10, 9% in a short term, uh, 100 years, it's about 12%. Yes, you'd probably be better off taking your social security now and investing it, but that's a whole other discussion. So the answer is next year's increase may not be as large. One of the reasons it also may not be as large is because gov the government is incentivized to keep the actual formula down for social security increases. It's a political lever and maneuver. So if you only get next year, you get a 6% increase, but inflation is still really running at eight, 9%. Again, you're still losing two to 3% against the actual inflation. So this article written by Lori Konish does a really good job at outlining that in more of hey, you better be careful that you don't just keep deferring and you're seven years underwater because you thought you were getting a good rate of return on your increase. There you go, Zach. Article <laughs> concluded. Thank you. I know everybody's on the edge of their seat. We started with the article. We didn't talk about the article for the last 20, 30 minutes. And now we're ending with the article. So I wanted to make sure that we brought it back full circle for everybody who's on the edge of their seat because it's riveting, but <laughs> I wanted to make sure that they all, they all heard that. 
I'd like to tell you that I had that all planned out like a Steven Spielberg cliffhanger, but absolutely <laughs> not. I just kind of went in too many different directions. <laughs> no, I think I think it was good. I think the direction that we ended up going in was was where we needed to be for everyone. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, everybody, thanks for joining us on Wiser Money Show. Zach, thanks for joining in. And you will you can always look forward to another invigorating and uh, conversational show. And please write in if you've got questions, comments, you can post them on wherever you're listening to or watching this. And we will make every possible effort as we have been very successful at replying to your comments or questions. With that in mind, signing off. <laughs>